The voice of Motown, West Virginia's leader in news, analysis, and rumors, proudly presents the Voice of Motown podcast, featuring your boys, Brandon and Tyler. Take it away, gentlemen. All right, this is the Voice of Motown podcast. I'm Tyler Peppy. And I'm Brandon Cork, and this is a WVU sports podcast by two suffering WVU fans. All right, today's podcast, we are going to discuss wins over UConn and Kent State. Uh, we are also going to preview UAB, and we'll discuss some of WVU's recruits prior to the early signing period on Wednesday. So let's jump right into the recruits. Early signing day is Wednesday through Friday this week. We're recording this on Tuesday, so we don't have the full information yet. However, we do know this. West Virginia has 32 spots they can fill, and Coach Neil Brown and his staff have been working hard to fill those spots, especially with some players transferring lately. So it appears 13 players will be here in January from the early signing period and transfers. And with that, I'll let Brandon fill you in on all that information. Yeah, definitely. So um, we have about nine players right now who are expected to sign um, tomorrow, um, potentially later in the week, but a lot of them are uh, expected to sign tomorrow. And, you know, some of our best players are expected to come in. Jacoby Spells um, is our top rated recruit. Um, he's a cornerback. Uh, he's expected to sign tomorrow. Um, Nico, our four-star quarterback, second highest recruit, is expected to sign tomorrow as well. And then our fourth highest recruit, uh, Christian Stokes, he's an athlete out of Michigan, um, is expected to uh, sign tomorrow as well. He's a high three-star, um, kind of a projected to be a safety. Um, joining those three will be uh, wide receiver Jarrell Williams, edge rusher Eric Burton from Germany, um, cornerback Mumu Bin Wahad, uh, another corner from Tyron Woodby, um, a punter from Australia, and then also Lynn J. Dixon uh, will be signing as well, the transfer from Clemson. So that's a it's a pretty exciting group and pretty defensive back heavy, um, which is interesting. I mean, I, it's definitely a spot that we saw at the end of the season there and linebacker were two um, areas where we were really getting thin, especially with the way we had to move people around. So it's good to see um, us bring some new bodies in there and some some pretty high high talent ones as well with uh, Stokes, Spells, and Ben Wahad. Um, all being pretty highly regarded. Um, and then, of course, um, looking at some more of the, the junior college players who are expected to sign early, um, as well as an additional high school recruit and a defensive end transfer um, who are expected to come in. And I'll go a little bit more in depth in because they just committed recently and they're expected to sign as well. Um, that includes Lee Kop- Kopba. Um, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but uh, he is a junior college transfer who actually committed to play for WVU out of high school, um, switched his commitment to Syracuse, played there for a couple years. Um, he played primarily special teams and line um, rotation at linebacker. Um, he was a former four-star recruit, um, and he's a, more of a physical player. Um, and even coming back out of junior college, he was pretty highly recruited with offers from Indiana, Louisville, South Carolina, and Memphis. So, um, you know, with Chandler Samito graduating, um, there's definitely some areas and openings in that linebacking core. And um, even though he is a hard hitter who does have a penchant for getting a personal foul penalty here and there, um, you know, he is an athletic linebacker who we could really use back there. So I'm excited for him. Um, Bringing another defensive back that we're bringing in is a safety Marquez McLaurin. Um, he's another Juco prospect. Um, he's a big defensive back, six foot two, 200 pounds, 19 pass breakups, seven interceptions in his te- two, season, two seasons of Juco. And uh, the interesting thing about him is he used to play quarterback. Actually, in high school, he was a quarterback before entering Juco, threw for over 7,000 yards in high school. Um, and he's really using kind of that experience um, as a quarterback to um, read offensive plays so that he can break up passes and get those interceptions that we just talked about. So another defensive back to be excited about. Um, then the newest, I think, recruit to our class is Asani Redwood, um, a defensive end. Um, he goes, he went to high school in Georgia 
actually the number one uh, team in Georgia who went 15 and known, won the state title. Um, he was not you know, the best player on their team, but he had a very impressive season. Um, their team only allowed one team to score more than one touchdown throughout their entire season. And their defense allowed an average of four points in their final 12 games. Um, he is a speed edge rusher, and his stats are ridiculous for his senior year. 116 tackles, 43 tackles for a loss, 19 sacks. Um, so, you know, six foot four, 240 pound guy. Might need to put some weight on if he's going to play defensive line, but that's a good size for a linebacker if they're planning on playing him there. Um, so, could be a very dynamic guy coming in um, right out of high school. Be interesting to see how he uh, comes in and develop. And then finally, rounding it out, and definitely not the least of them is uh, Zakai Lawton. Um, he's a transfer from Cincinnati, originally from South Charleston. Um, he was the number two rated recruit out of West Virginia um, whenever he committed to Cincinnati. But now he's coming home. Um, a very athletic defensive end coming in at six foot three, 240 pounds. Um, laser timed at a 4.75. So for that size, that's, that's pretty good. Um, he didn't play much for Cincinnati, but he was only there for a year. And, um, you know, with Stills leaving and Messador, you know, I think he's going to be a, a junior. Um, and some of the other guys on there, we, you know, Alston, I think he's graduating as well. There's definitely going to be some room. And Lawton is uh, someone who has the pedigree um, to come in and make noise right away. Yeah, those are definitely exciting. Um, yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to see how Neil Brown fills all this. I suspect Coach Neil Brown will try to fill a few spots with JUCO players, transfers, and the rest will hopefully be young high school kids who we can develop here at West Virginia. With the transfer portal, though, I mean, it seems hard to bring in a freshman and keep him all four years unless he's going to play, you know, probably by the time he's a sophomore. It seems like otherwise they're they're ready to go somewhere else and play immediately. So it'll be interesting to see uh, which route they take to fill a lot of those spots. But 32 spots are a lot to fill. And, and um, I'm, I'm sure they didn't see all of these transfers that have happened recently at West Virginia coming. So don't be surprised if Coach Brown isn't able to fill all 32 openings. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's definitely going to be a challenge, but I definitely think that there's a lot of opportunity to do it, especially with the amount of transfers that are happening around the country. Um, you know, I just did an article over the weekend kind of analyzing what's happening at WVU, but um, I have been analyzing data, kind of comparing how all the transfers are happening across the country. And, you know, it's it's happening everywhere. I mean, over the past three or four years, there's names that you wouldn't expect up there in the top transfer counts, like, you know, Arizona State's up there with Herm Edwards. You would think that, you know, his player retention would be a little bit better being, you know, the player coach that he was kind of always thought of, thought of to be. Um, Tennessee, you know, with all their McDonald bags, as people say, um, you know, they're losing transfers. I mean, so it's not just schools like West Virginia. Um, it's happening across the board. And, you know, sometimes it has to do with winning. Sometimes it has to do with a new coach hire that obviously shakes some things up. But the transfer portal was making it so much easier for players to move from one place to another. And, uh, yeah, I mean there's enough bodies out there on the portal that you can bring other guys in and um, definitely WVU definitely needs to, um, you know, kind of the one position I'm looking at pretty heavily for them to bring in more bodies at is linebacker. I mean, I know we've already mentioned a couple, um, you know, through the people that we already know are committed and signing early, but, um, and I think there's maybe one or two that are coming in um, the spring signing period, but I, I feel like that's a position that we need to bring in, you know, five or six guys in if we can, because, um, you know, whether it's from JUCO or transfers or wherever, um, it seems like there's a lot of playing time to go around there, especially with how many, you know, defensive backs we were playing there towards the end of the season. I mean, and we tra had what two or three guys transfer out, um, from linebacker spots in the past three or four months. So, um, really hoping we bring in some more guys there. Yeah, you bring up a good point. It goes both ways. If guys are able to leave very easily, that means you're able to nab a few who are leaving other schools as well. And um, yeah, so like I said, it'll be interesting to see what Coach Brown and his staff decide to do to fill those spots. But I mean, that was always the knock on Dana. He didn't fill all of his scholarships. But I don't I don't really think, um, 
you know, that's a knock on Coach Brown yet. Uh, I just think all of these sudden transfers probably caught him off guard a little bit. And uh, if I had to make a guess, I bet they'll be in the late 20s, worst case scenario, which, you know, isn't the end of the world. It's not like they're going to have a ton of spots that they don't fill, even if they don't reach the full 32. Yeah, definitely. And the one thing I do like is that, you know, we, we are circling back and taking former guys who went to West Virginia high schools. I mean, you think of, we brought in Nestor. Um, obviously we brought in Frazier out of high school. Um, you know, we're bringing in Lawton. Um, so, you know, we're, we're trying to rebuild those relationships that Dana kind of neglected while he was here. I know the, the famous one that Dana neglected was uh, Ryan Switzer uh, when he came out and ended up going to North Carolina. And there was actually a, a Twitter thread that was going on I think it was last week that I saw where someone tweeted at Switzer because he was talking about um, WVU basketball game. And he said, you know, if you love the team, how come you didn't come to WVU? And they said, he said, he didn't want me. <laughs> so, um, you know, and Switzer's someone who ended up playing in the NFL for a few years, um, actually for the Steelers for and, and Raiders. So, um, you know, it's just things like that. And I think it was things like that that kind of rub people the wrong way with Dana, too. Um, you know, I, I don't think Dana was trying to be malicious with it. I just think he was in my opinion, kind of lazy, um, but, uh, you know, it's good to see Neil Brown try to take care of, you know, the people that are coming out of West Virginia, because those are the players you should get, you know, 99% of the time, you shouldn't be letting that talent leave the state. And, um, you know, even after they've left the state, he's still trying to find a way to bring them back. So I do like that. And that makes me feel good. Yeah, for sure. I agree with all that. Um, so yeah, that, I mean, that's all the opinions I have on, uh, Football recruiting, you got anything else? No, let's go on to uh, basketball. Yeah, so let's cover basketball. Like we said at the top of the podcast, we're going to be recapping the UConn game, the Kent State game, and then we'll give you a little preview for UAB on Saturday because I'm pretty excited, actually, for that game. So the West Virginia Mountaineers, they're 9-1 and after defeating UConn and Kent State. So let's talk about the UConn game. I didn't think it would be that low scoring. I was even messaging you at the end of the game. The final score was uh, 56 to 53. And UConn was averaging around 80 points per game coming into the WVU game. But uh, they couldn't buy a three. And and really, uh, we're, we're pretty lucky that they couldn't. They only shot 14% from the three-point line. Um, and that's good for us because meanwhile, WVU only shot 44% from the free throw line. So in the end, uh, it was very low scoring, but uh, no matter, it results in a West Virginia victory. So what did you think about the game? Yeah, I was super shocked by the low scoring um, ability. And, you know, I was kind of questioning, you know, what this means, um, especially with, you know, the low scoring um, of the game, as well as, the fact that uh, Sherman and McNeil combined for 70% of the points, uh, 39 of 56 points, um, just absolutely crazy. But actually just a thought that crossed my mind here a few minutes ago was, you know, maybe this is by design. Maybe Huggins game plan is to just muck it up, um, take away what the other team wants to do, play as stingy defense as you can, and just let Sherman and McNeil win you the game. I'm not sure if that's what the plan is, but Right now, I mean, just from the way that we're not seeing really any tertiary scoring come up, I mean, Curry's not scoring, Bridges isn't scoring, I think. Was it Gabe who actually had the most um, shot attempts outside of Sherman and McNeil? Um, It's just interesting, um, you know, how how much it's kind of centered around those two. Uh, So, yeah, that was kind of my main thought is maybe we're intentionally trying to play just a, a, a more defensive brand of basketball and let our two best players win us the game. Yeah. Yeah. I actually have a lot on um, a third scoring option after we kind of go over the Ken state game and everything like that. But I noticed that as well. Um, even in the Ken state game, they did a majority of the scoring, but um, some good things to highlight about the Yukon game is Polly Polycap. He, he had some highlight real blocks against Yukon and Kent State, chasing down guys on fast breaks. Um, that would have been an easy two points. And, you know, you look at a game like Yukon, we only won by three. Those are important plays at the end of the day. And so great hustle plays, and you love to see it because if Taz and McNeil are going to do the bulk of the scoring, 
then it's great to see the role players contributing in other ways, especially when it's a gritty, high-effort play. Gets the crowd going, gets your teammates energized. So what do you think about Poly Polycap lately? Oh, I like him. I mean, I think the UConn game, he, he didn't play um, as well as he did in the Kent State game. Kent State, you know, five rebounds, two blocks in 14 minutes. Unfortunately, he did have four fouls, so that kind of limits how many minutes he can play. But I think as of late, he's been the best big. Um, you know, no offense to Gabe. I do think Gabe helps in different ways than Polycap does. Gabe isn't a shot blocker. Gabe is a little bit more <laughs> versatile offensively, even though he's not a scorer. But, you know, Polycap, uh, I, I love seeing him down there. I mean, he's he does more for the team than Cottrell. He does more for the team than Kerrigan does. Um, he's athletic. He rebounds well. He's always producing in some way, shape, or form. And it's just an, another body that we can throw out there and not really have a negative thing happen. Um, you know, and even if he does end up being, you know, a zero on offense, I mean, Huggins teams traditionally have always had kind of a, you know, I, I don't want to say zero because that, you know, maybe interpreted negatively, but, you know, an offensive guy who is just out there to set screens and, you know, pass the ball. I mean, think of Cam Thurman, think of uh, Nathan Adrian before his senior year, um, guys who just kind of, thrived on defense and really didn't have to chip in too much offensively because of all the value that they brought on defense. So having Polycap and Gabe out there, um, maybe not necessarily the same time, but I, I think they really changed the game for the way teams have to play us because they're so versatile in what they can guard and what they take away defensively. Yeah, I agree. It's great to see him really earn a role on this team because towards the beginning of the year, it looked like Hugs might have been giving Kerrigan a little more playing time. But uh, Polly has earned his time on court, and that's great to see for him. Of course, Kerrigan still gets his fair share of minutes, and Cottrell is still getting a lot of game experience um, against these teams that were able to put away a little bit. So that's good to see, but... Um, I, I just think it's great that when the chips are down, hugs can rely on multiple big men. And we saw that in the second half versus UConn. Uh, Polly played most of the last 10 minutes of that game, but then he played Kerrigan in the last minute. And so that just shows he has a lot of trust in our big guys. And it seems like he's willing to put in whoever's, I don't want to say the hot hand because it's not like they're scoring, but he just seems to be playing whoever's on a roll and bringing a lot of energy at any given point in time. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at historically, the way that our basketball team has been structured is that, you know, we'll have one or two big guys and then maybe a third that's just not ready to play yet or really can't. And then those two bigs get in foul trouble and you're left playing someone like, you know, Senny who's not ready or you're playing Jalen Bridges at the five, which isn't the best thing to do. So, or even Emmett Matthews, we did a few times. Um, it just doesn't work. So, um, you know, now that we have three or four different guys down there that can kind of rotate, play together a little bit for limited stretches without hurting you too much is just so much better because it allows us to play at a more consistent level, um, for longer periods of time. Um, you know, it's good to have redundancy. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I don't want to put a negative spin on the victory because it's always good to defeat a ranked team, but this is certainly a game we were lucky that UConn was without their second and third leading scores because uh, we may have seen a different outcome if Martin and Sonogo played because a cook, a cook, and Jordan Hawkins were a combined one for 12, a 0 0.08 shooting percentage. Yikes. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I was actually surprised with Hawkins' performance because I actually thought he was the best of the secondary options um, to, to come in and, and fill in. Um, but it's also a hard environment for a true freshman. I mean, he has the size at six foot five. He's, he was an efficient scorer in the previous games. But, you know, coming into Morgantown, the Coliseum, when you're a ranked team, that's always hard. You know, I remember going to a game um, against UConn whenever – I don't know if I was in college or if it was before um, whenever I was in high school, but uh, they were playing a UConn team who had uh, Charlie Villanueva on the team. I don't know if you remember him, the bald guy. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, just the way that the, the fans and the students harassed him um, with chance of Rogaine and other things like that. The, the, they always find a way to get in your head. And even if you are just a freshman who they're not someone who they're going to necessarily pick on, they're going to make it loud and they're going to make it annoying for you to, you know, make it tough for you to get into your rhythm. So um, 
it's a good challenge for a young player to come into an environment like that to get ready for conference play. But, you know, him going over whatever um, isn't super surprising, um, but it is something that really hurt UConn. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think, yeah, Hawkins went 0 for 7 just by himself. But, um, hey, it wins a win. And I was actually hoping a victory like this would have helped West Virginia get into the top 25. But they're still just outside the rankings. I think I saw 32 um, somewhere. But maybe because of the injuries to Martin and Sonogo, um, maybe people who do the rankings took that into consideration, but the Mountaineers seem to play best when they're flying under the radar. So maybe it's not such a bad thing to be unranked still. Yeah. I mean, I I think we definitely, I definitely think that we deserve to be ranked at least, you know, 24, 25. I can't imagine there's 25 better teams than us right now, even though we are playing a little bit more unconventionally. Um, But, you know, we do have, you don't have a ton of quality wins. I mean, our loss was against Marquette who looked good. Um, I haven't checked in in on them lately, so not sure how they're doing now, but UConn seemed good. And I I think if we go in there and beat UAB, which we'll cover here in a little bit um, on Saturday, you know, that should help bump us up too, because even though UAB isn't ranked, they are a team who a lot of the analytics sites are projecting as a, tournament team um a team that will make it out of the conference usa which normally gets one maybe two teams in so um it's a quality opponent that we're coming up against next yeah for sure and uh i just looked it up marquette's eight and three they just lost to ucla and wisconsin recently and uh saint bonaventure was their other defeat but um they seem like a solid team. yeah three tough teams so i mean i you know there's no shame in and that I don't think so. I know we're kind of blending all the like the stories going on together, but um, let's talk about the Kent State game a little bit. The Mountaineers defeated Kent State 63 to 50. West Virginia only had nine points with seven minutes left in the first half. So definitely a slow start for the Mountaineers. Um, but then Taz, of course, started to heat up there. And they were able to earn a 25 to 22 lead going into halftime. So they kind of rallied. And then they had a 14 0 run in the second half to safely pull away from the Golden Flashes. But uh, what did you think about the Kent State game? Um, a lot of similarities between, you know, not necessarily in game flow, but in, you know, kind of the outcome of the game between Kent State and UConn. Um, you know, a lower scoring game. Uh, Sherman and McNeil combining for 73% of the team's points um, up from 70% from the previous game, terrible free throw shooting 13 for 24. Um, and they held Kent state to 22% from three, which is well below what you want to shoot as a team. So, um, you know, I love to see that Sherman and McNeil are putting points on the board. I don't like seeing that. We don't have any tertiary scoring. Um, uh, the, the free throw shooting is terrifying. Um, I don't know why it's doing so poorly, but on the bright side of things, it seems like we're doing a better job of making it tough for teams to score us, score on us in three point range. And I think that's probably the most important adjustment that we could make, especially in this day and age where the three point shot is taken more than ever. Yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, you you kind of alluded to it in individual games for um, Sherman and McNeil's points being a majority of our offense. So if we combine the UConn game and the Kent State game, Taz and McNeil scored 85 of West Virginia's 119 points. That is 71% of WVU's points in those two games which leads me to that third scoring option. After Taz and McNeil, the highest leading scores were Kedrian Johnson and Kerrigan with only four points each. So here's my big question. Where has Malik Perry been lately? I feel like I pick on Jalen Bridges enough, so I'm going to focus on Malik this episode. Um, after that fantastic performance against Eastern Kentucky where he was driving to the hoop, making tough layups, um, I really thought he was going to emerge as our third scorer, but he has just slowly faded ever since. He only had nine points against uh, Bellarmine. He had six versus Radford. 
Um, not too bad, but then he has a combined two points versus UConn and Kent State. So the question for this Mountaineer team is still, who's our third scorer? It's Taz McNeil. And in some of those games, I mean, that's literally it. No one else is contributing uh, on the scoreboard. So this is going to catch up with us. I've kind of been saying it all year. We need somebody, anybody to just step up and be a consistent contributor on the scoreboard. I just refuse to believe that McNeil and for the most part, Taz can do this all on his own once big play starts and big 12 plays right around the corner. Uh, I was really hoping Bridges or somebody like Curry would have emerged and taken that role by now. But as far as I can tell, that's still a huge void for this team. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, I think Curry's issue um, just from kind of watching him and hearing other people talk about it is that he's, you know, for lack of a better term, a one trick pony, he drives to the left and tries to get to the rim and that's it. So for a defense, it's pretty easy to figure out a way to take that away. You just don't let him go to his left hand. Um, so, you know, with him, you know, if with him being a, what, a fifth or sixth year senior now, um, you probably can't expect him to learn too much more or to do anything too much differently. Um, so you, I kind of look at guys behind him and other guys who are playing but not necessarily ready to take on a bigger role as guys who you have to see as potential offensive spark plugs. And, you know, I look at Isaiah Cottrell. I look at Kobe Johnson. They're young. Um, they don't have a ton of experience right now, both freshmen technically. Um, but they both have offensive potential. And, you know, if we need to, you know, bring in someone like a Kobe Johnson off the bench as a uh, Jay Sean Page or a Taz, or not Taz Sherman, but, uh, um, you know, Jason, Jay Sean Page and, I, I, the other name I'm blanking on the point guards who score off the bench, you know, someone like him to come in and, you know, provide a jolt or even someone like Cottrell who could come in and has shown touch around the rim and potential as a jump shooter, um, figuring out ways to get him integrated into the offense, because there are going to be times where you're facing a team like, you know, a Baylor who's going to have a premier defender on the perimeter. Who's going to take, take out one of Taz or McNeil or potentially even both. Um, so then what are you going to do then? You need someone who's going to go in there and score. And I'm not confident enough of all the other role players on the team are going to be able to c contribute enough to beat a team like a Baylor or anyone else that I'm you know, not thinking of, you know, even Kansas or Texas or things like that. They're all going to find ways to take out your best player. And, you know, I, I don't think we have eight other players on the team who can combine for 50 points. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. I mean, look at the coaches in the Big 12. They are very intelligent guys. They're going to be playing West Virginia in multiple games. They are going to find a way to slow Taz down. And, uh, you know, McNeil can get streaky, but there's even times um, some of these non-conference teams have found ways to slow him down. So, like I keep saying, this was something I hope they would have kind of figured out by now, but it just seems like they haven't. And um, you know, we have other guys on the team who are such talented scores. I don't understand what the issue is. I don't know if some of them have nagging injuries that we're not aware of. Um, you know, I don't want to start rumors. I'm just trying to just scratch my head and think what is going on. Are they just playing timid and there's no reason that they you know, can't be consistent contributors night in, night out? Jalen Bridges has six combined points in the UConn and Kent State game, he made a three-pointer in each game. He has all the skills to be a dominant scorer. There's just no excuse for him to be making one bucket a game. I don't get it. Yeah, and I, I even, you know, I think in uh, the post-game last week, Hugs even called out Jalen, not in a, you know, malicious way, but just saying, you know, you know, we expect him to, to perform a little bit better. You know, we know he can do more. We want to see him do more. And even on Twitter, um, Jalen Bridges' mom called him out. He's like, you know, where's the Jalen that I knew growing up? And he's like, I know, I'm working on it. Um, <laughs> so, you know, everyone involved knows what's going on. Uh, I'm not sure what the reason is. Um, obviously, you know, it's kind of hard, you know, when you're playing with someone like Taz, who's so ball dominant, but rightfully so, he needs the ball in his hands. Um, there's other ways you can contribute, which he is, you know, off the ball, but there's other ways to contribute scoring the way. It's scoring, you know, slashing. Um, attacking closeouts on driving kicks. 
you know, the one thing that teams are really kind of trying to take away from him are those spot up three pointers. Cause he's really, really efficient at those bridges is. So, you know, the one way to attack aggressive closeouts is to attack it. You know, they, they're coming up fast on you. You just start drive, put your head down, drive to the rim and you're going to get past them because their momentum, it's not a video game. Their momentum can't change on the spot of a, a dime uh, to catch you. So you have a free run to the rim. If a big man rotates in, you can find someone else on the perimeter who's open to, you know, pass the ball to and get them an easy shot. So, um, and I think he's capable of doing all of that. You know, that's not something that's too difficult, but it's something that's super valuable and something that, you know, even the NBA, in the NBA, they look at a lot as, you know, just kind of a sign of basketball intelligence and aggressiveness. And, you know, I know he he's capable of it. He just needs to do it. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. And I, I don't want to be too hard on Bridges because he is contributing in other ways. Like you said, he's getting rebounds. He's not just a body out there. It's just I, I just wish he would put more points up. But uh, you brought up a great point. It kind of leads me right into the next thing I have. With Taz needing the ball in his hand so much, here's a very ESPN hot take question for you, which, you know, we hate ESPN and all those gimmicky shows they have. But I think this... I think it's a legit question. Do you think since Taz Sherman is such a prolific scorer that his teammates sometimes get lazy and feel that they can give a little less effort on the offensive side of the ball since there's a good chance Taz will just bail him out since, you know, he doesn't need you to give him a great pass for him to score. He's got so many moves that you can just give him the ball and clear out. Do you think that's kind of somewhere in the back of his teammates' heads and they're just not being as aggressive when they do get the ball. I could see that. Um, I don't think that would be too far off base, but, you know, I, I think the remedy for that, if that is what the issue is, is that, you know, you, you put the ball in hand, you know, it may sound kind of productive, but you put the ball in Taz's hands more, you know, you run that five out, you let him do his thing. And then you put people where they're comfortable with, you know, you put bridges in the corner, you put McNeil on the perimeter, um, you know, things like that, because then you're going to create more open opportunities for that because teams are going to have to um, double Taz more. And if you just kind of want to stand around, you're going to get open shots. I mean, the, the prime example is, uh, you know, taking it to an extreme is the Houston Rockets when James Harden was on the team. And I know I've made the analogy that Taz Sherman is a poor man's James Harden before, but um, it's true because if you look at the players who are on, who are on that team when they were making those title runs, like, Daniel House, does anyone know who that is? Does anyone know who PJ Tucker is? Like outside of him winning a championship, the, their whole role was playing defense and standing in the corner. So, um, it, it, if you have someone like Taz, you can utilize them more. And if you don't have guys who are capable or willing to, to be aggressive to score, you can just put them in the corner if they're good shooters and get them open shots because teams are going to have to double and collapse in on Taz when he's trying to get to the hoop into his spots in the mid range. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I'm not trying to knock Taz's game. I don't think it's his fault at all. I just do think like, it's just a natural instinct that if you see a teammate who's always able to make something happen, that maybe you get a little lackluster and you don't feel like you got to do quite as much, but um, without a doubt, we have the talent. So I do think once big 12 play starts, I could see us being a, it being a little rough for a first few games, but I do think they'll figure it out before tournament time. Um, but that's all I got for the recaps. You ready to get into the preview? Uh, before we get into the preview, I had a, um, I, I guess it maybe be more of a lukewarm take for you, but I want to get your thoughts on it. So, you know, let, let's look ahead a couple months and let's say, WVU does end up in the top 25. Let's say we end up in the conversation for like a four or five seed in the tournament. Um, and Taz keeps doing what he's doing. Um, do you think that Taz could be considered a dark horse candidate for the Naismith college player of the year? That's not a bad question. Honestly, if he keeps doing what he's doing now, I could definitely see that. I believe the guy from Kansas is outscoring him as of right now though. Right. Is he still? Um, them? I know at one point he was. He might be. Yeah. Um. I mean, I could see him being in consideration. I would find it very hard to believe that they would give it to him just because we know how, you know, the NCAA is. If uh, one of these blue blood schools has an outstanding player like Kansas or Kentucky, 
you know, chances are it's going to go to them because not unless Kansas somehow has somewhat of a down year in conference play. They win the Big 12 every year. They're always up there in a high seed. So, But I could definitely see him getting some consideration and some recognition for it if he can keep this up. I, I definitely think it's going to be interesting once Big 12 play starts to see how our team evolves. Because like we keep saying, you know, these smart coaches, they're going to find ways to slow Taz down. Because even if they don't the first time around that they play WVU, these teams play multiple times. So they're going to come in with a game plan to take the ball out of his hand somehow. Yeah, and that's the thing that I think worries me about Big 12 play, especially, you know, if a team doesn't have someone who can one-on-one take him out. Um, they're going to double team him. And we might even start seeing that in the next few games. I wouldn't be, you know, maybe UAB comes out and tries to do something crazy like that, but double teaming, you know, the whole game, taking him up the full, you know, full court, not pressing, but just riding him up the court the entire time, trying to wear him out, um, attacking him on defense frequently. I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can do it, but, you know, especially if they're double teaming and they're applying additional pressure to him, it kind of goes back to our point of, players need to be more aggressive players need to um you know take more shot, shots when they have the opportunity um and it's going to be interesting to see how our team reacts if taz gets shut down or they're just completely taking him out of the game um the one extreme example i can think of is um you know what was it over a decade ago now when uh, steph curry was on davidson and basically all they did uh, one team did was double Steph the entire game. They they left one guy open the entire game. So he just stood in the corner at one point. And there's a replay you can watch on YouTube where Steph was literally standing in the corner with two guys on him. And the defense was playing four on three just to take him out of the game. Now, I don't think they would do that to Taz. I think that's a little bit too extreme of a situation. But, you know, in that game, I think David Davidson ended up winning because you're playing four on three. But you got to have those guys who are willing to make plays whenever you're in that situation. So if teams are going to cheat over to Taz more, if teams are going to try to take him out completely um, or attack him more, you know, you, you got to find a way to take that pressure off by making them pay for being too lax on you. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And like I said, you know, we have guys who can score. We have talented guys. The only question is, are they going to figure it out mid-January or is it going to be heading into March and they're still trying to figure out who can be a consistent third scorer on our team, you know? Because honestly, I thought they would have, um, I thought someone would have emerged by this point and just no one has. So, oh, 100%. You, we'll you would see. think, yeah. And, you know, the worst case scenario, um, maybe not worst case, maybe even it's in a better case scenario where, you know, players like, you know, Curry just, don't cut it after a while. I mean, I love Curry. I think he has a good role on this team long-term, but we have young guards behind him. We have Kobe. We have uh, um, his name slipping, <laughs> slipping my mind right now, but uh, um, you know, the, the other guard on our team um, that could step in a step up and play too. And, you know, I know they saw a little bit more minutes in the, was it the Bellarmine game um, where we blew, blew them out. But uh, you know, there's definitely guys waiting in the wings who could take, take the opportunity and run with it. Um, if these other older players can't step up and, you know, give them something. Yeah, for sure. It, the thing is too, I, I think this is why hugs is so hesitant to pull the trigger on some of the younger guys is, you know, Curry, um, Kedrian, they are great defensive players. They're getting steals. Um, and so they are contributing. It's just, uh, I don't know. I don't know. They just need to put it all together. So let's get into the UAB game because I think this is going to be a very interesting matchup. The West Virginia Mountaineers take on the UAB Blazers Saturday at 5 o'clock. You can catch the game on CBS Sports Network. And this is a team that WVU won't be sleeping on. They can clearly put up a lot of points, averaging 83 points per game. That stat might change after the Grambling State game. Keep in mind, we're recording this right after that game ended. So, you know, some of these statistics we're throwing at you might be slightly off if you're checking in a couple of days later. But regardless, they score a lot. So how do you feel about the Blazers on Saturday? I think they're really interesting. I mean, in some ways, they kind of remind me uh, of UConn um, in the way that, especially with their offensive rebound rate, which is 29th in the country, um, they are, you know, 
rebounding 35% of their own misses. Um, but there's some areas areas of their game where I feel encouraged. Um, they're allowing teams to shoot 40% from three. Um, and we have, we have shooters on our team. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how it balances out. Um, and if UAB's aggressiveness on the offensive boards and on defense can counteract um, WVU shooting. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I just looked it up. They did. Uh, I knew they were winning, but uh, it's a final. They beat Grambling State 79 to 61. So, um, I mean, that pretty much goes with what they've been doing all year. They score a lot. Um, they allow somewhere in the 60s most game for their opponent. Um, but yeah, like you said, there are some encouraging things. UAB is 9-2 and two now after that win, and their two losses are a two-point loss to the 10-0 San Francisco and a three-point loss to a 7-2 and two South Carolina, who is coached by Frank Martin, a guy West Virginia fans are familiar with. So solid teams, um, and this they appear to be a legit basketball team. I know when most people think of UAB, you know, they don't think some powerhouse school, but um, these aren't some of the opponents we've been playing lately. They, you know, I saw some of their opponents. Some of their opponents are kind of laughable, but um, let's be honest, WVU has beaten up on some low-level teams early in the season as well, so I won't knock them for that. But did you see the score UAB had against Millsap? Yeah, they beat him by, what, 80? Oh my god, it was 103 to 29. I mean, that's like <laughs> Yeah, that's like a video game. Like are you that's not even I, I can't even wrap my head around that. <laughs> so um, you know, some of their stats might be inflated, but when I did some deeper digging, I mean they even perform well against the, the tough opponents. UAB, they're first in the NCAA in steals. They average 13 steals per game. You compare that to West Virginia who has 8.9, and, you know, we seem to be a team that does get a lot of steals, and they're still well well above us. Um, I understand that number might be slightly inflated because they had 17 steals versus Millsap, 23 steals versus Rhode Island. Um, but keep in mind, they also had 14 steals versus South Carolina as well. So they can do it against good opponents. They're very aggressive. And if West Virginia gets careless with the basketball, you know, UAB will surely make them pay for it. Yeah, um, I, and I think it's going to be interesting to see how who they who West Virginia runs out at point guard this game. I mean, I think Caddy p- plays a lot because he is a defensive point guard and he's very good at that. And they will need him, um, especially against Jordan Walker, who I'll go into in a minute. But you know, someone like Kobe Johnson, who might be a better ball handler, will he see an increased role? Um, you know, do you put the ball in Taz's ball more? Or do you let him play off ball and try to get him the ball off the pressure? Um, it's gonna be interesting to see how Hugs decides to counteract their aggressiveness. Um, but their aggressiveness does come with some downside because they also foul on uh, 23% of plays, which is I think top 20 in the nation. Um, so if we get to the line, we need to make them. We cannot have any more of these 50% and less performances from the line because that could be a killer and a difference maker. Yeah, for sure. That's a good point. I didn't realize they fouled that much. And uh, yeah, you know, you look at like the UConn game where we were under 50%. That could definitely play a role. Um, But yeah, looking at their players, you already mentioned them. Jordan Walker and Quan Jackson seems to be their offensive threats, averaging 15 and 12 points per game. However, um, the story might be Jeminson, I think is his name. Trey Jeminson. Yeah, and Buffin underneath uh, because they they usually pull down a lot of rebounds and they do a fair share of scoring themselves, somewhere around you know, seven, eight points for each of them. So it'll be interesting to see how our big men match up against their bigs. Um, but which matchups kind of stick out for you? Because, you know, you even mentioned the point guard one. There seems to be a lot of fun matchups. Yeah, I think Jordan Walker is the one I, I worry about the most just because he seems to be the guy who, um, you know, can, is the most versatile scoring wise. I know, um, you know, their other guard, um, he does score quite a bit, but uh, he is not very good at shooting threes. I think whenever I looked at his stats, he was shooting 17% from three. So um, I am more than happy to not have to guard someone else on the perimeter for us to leave them in the open in the corner and worry about them making three. So, 
Um, that's kind of a relief, but Jordan Walker is, he reminds me of, um, what was his name? Cole from UConn. I think that was his name, their point guard, where he is kind of the hub of their offense. Not only does he score nearly 16 points a game, but he also dishes out about five assists per game, uh, pretty respectable numbers for the college game. And he shoots 42% from the three point line. And he does shoot a lot of threes, about 49% of his shots are from three. Um, so he will take those shots when he can get them, even if he doesn't have a lot of room. Um, so it's going to be crucial to kind of do what we did against Kent, do what we did against UConn and limit those good attempts because you need to bother him. Um, and the one thing that's going to play to our advantage is that we do have bigger guards. Um, I think Keddy is what, six, three, six, four, Kobe, six, three, Taz is six, four. Um, and Jordan Walker is only five eleven. So even when Curry's out there, Curry's going to be seeing eye to eye with him. He's not going to be the smallest guy in the court anymore. So hopefully, um, you know, we can take advantage of that size size disadvantage for Walker and um, limit him in the scoring department. Um, the second guy I had highlighted was, you know, one of the ones that you did too, and that's Trey Jeminson. Um, We just do not have anyone who can match up with his size. I know he's not a, a big scorer, but he is seven foot, 260 pounds. So he is a legit big man. Um, 8.3 rebounds per game, 1.4 blocks per game. But he only shoots the ball about five times per game. Um, but on those five shots, he's making about three of them. So he's shooting about 64% from the field. Um, you know, so he's going to be able to take advantage of putbacks. He's going to be able to take advantage of smaller defenders, little hook shots. So the one thing I worry about is if he becomes kind of a focal point of their offense, if they notice that they have someone down there who has a, you know, three, four, five inch advantage on whoever's guarding him down there. Um, and he can just, I don't know if it's in his game. I don't know if he has the ability to do it, but if he can just turn around and do a little hook shot over top of them over and over again, or even dunk over them, um, it's going to be really interesting to see what he is capable of. Cause you know, he could just be a seven foot, 260 pound guy. Who's a, who's a traffic cone out there. Um, or he could be someone who, who can move a little. Um, I haven't watched any of him, so it's going to be interesting to see to figure out what type of athlete he is. Cause if he's a good athlete, he could really give us problems down there. Yeah. Yeah. I think the big matchup will be very interesting because, um, you know, that guy is huge, but we do have physical defenders. And the good thing is we, like we talked about earlier, we have multiple guys. So hopefully we can wear them out and, um, you know, slow them down for the real crucial minutes of the game. So another thing that I looked up that I thought was interesting, UAB on average greatly outscores their opponents in the second half. They rank 10th in second half points with nearly uh, 44 points in the second half per game, while their opponents only score about 30 points in the second half. Um, and, and West Virginia does not score a lot in the second half. We rank 276 with 33 and a half points in the second half. However, the reason West Virginia has been winning is it seems like we really up our defense in the second half. We're only allowing 32 points from our opponents in the second half. So I predict that by halftime, it's probably going to be a pretty tight contest. I don't think either team's going to run away with it by halftime. And so the story of the game will be how, how these two teams respond and come out in the second half. That'll really determine the winner. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, I feel like, even though our stats don't necessarily indicate it, I do think we have been playing better in the second half, especially since that um, that Marquette game. Um, ever since we blew that lead, I feel like, you know, against Clemson, we came out, uh, we weren't playing great. Then we came back and won that one. Um, Eastern Kentucky, um, you know, Kent State. We've always found a way to kind of turn it on when we needed to. So, you know, even though the, the early results may not necessarily indicate it, um, hopefully our more recent performances are indicative that we are becoming more of a second half team, which is very important. Yeah, absolutely. Cause I mean, if you watch, you know, college basketball game, uh, typically by halftime, it's still anybody's game. And so it's great to see that we're up in the defense and um, yeah, it'll definitely be a big factor, but uh, I don't have a whole lot more to cover this game. You got anything else? No, that's about all I had. I think it's going to be a fun game to watch and uh you know, like we said, I think this is going to be a tournament team, UAB, um, one of the top teams in the Conference USA. So um, it's a great time to get a good quality win. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, games like this are really starting to excite me because, you know, it's nice to get these padded wins early in the season, but with conference play being right around the corner, I really want to see how we stack up against quality opponents. And this will be a great opportunity because we have UAB and then I believe we have one more game until Texas and we're going to get into big 12 play. So definitely check out the game. If, uh, if you're free on Saturday. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. All right. So guys, as always, we appreciate you listening. Please follow us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, any social media that you have. Look for the Voice of Motown podcast and please follow us. Um, Give us some feedback. Let us know what you like about the podcast, what uh, we could do that, that we could make it better. And, um, you know, definitely follow us on Spotify or wherever you like listening to podcasts. Please follow us so that you know when we drop new ones. And next week, we are going to be uh, previewing the bowl game, which will be here before you know it. And we'll probably also um, touch base on what happened on the early signing period for the Mountaineers. So do you have anything to add? No, just, you know, reach out if you have any feedback, thoughts, comments, things that you would like to hear. Uh, things you would like to see. We are posting shorter videos um, from our podcast on YouTube. So if you want to see our ugly mugs, feel free to take a gander over there. I can't promise it, promise you that you won't regret it, but uh, you know, you teach their own, I guess. Um, But yeah, follow us on social, reach out, send us some messages. Um, You know, I've been posting articles on the uh, voice of Motown, much more substantive stuff, um, digging into the data on you know more recently transfer stuff so if you want to read some of that um read it and reach out if you have any thoughts or questions or comments um and yeah we really appreciate you listening and we hope to catch you next time around yeah definitely look for the voice of motown podcast on uh youtube for those shorter clips and uh definitely check out brandon's articles he he did a lot of research and wrote a great one on all the transfers that have been um, not only coming out of West Virginia, but he he relates it to how the entire landscape of college football and the transfer portal and how it's changed everything. And so I know it's a hot button topic and people feel very strongly about it, no matter what their opinion is. So definitely give it a read and uh, drop us a comment and let us know how you feel about it. And that's it for us, guys. So thank you very much. This is the Voice of Motown podcast, and we will see you next time. Bye, everyone.